0: Albert Knudsen, he wrote, there are two classes of preachers. The good preachers who have something to say and the poor preachers who have to say something. (laughs) But there is yet another and higher class. It consists of those who both have something to say and who have to say it. Such are the prophets. These prophets that we read in the Bible, they were, they are mouthpieces. Mouthpieces of God. And they are perhaps the best preachers the world has ever seen. And so it's been a privilege for us It's been a great privilege to study these last 12 books of the Old Testament, these minor prophets. And now here we are this morning, and we arrive at the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. We don't know a lot about this prophet, other than that his name means my messenger. His name means God's messenger. He likely wrote around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll see that he addresses the very same issues that they did. We know that he wrote after the Jews returned from exile because he uses words that were from Persia. And we know that the temple, by this point, had finally been rebuilt, because he's going to refer to it in the text. So, based on that information, most historians think that he wrote this book, that he preached this message around 450 BC. So, this is four and a half centuries before Jesus was born. Regarding his message... Here's what Gary Yates said in his book, The Message of the Twelve. In the day of Malachi, the message was clear. Live today in light of a future day. The great awesome day of the Lord. So they needed to look past their present day. And hold tight to who God is and what God had done. The main point of Malachi's message is this God's people must not live according to their circumstances and their assumptions, but rather God's people must live according to the nature and the promises of God. That summarizes an answer to one of life's biggest questions. Here I am. How am I supposed to live this life that's in front of me? However long it is, how long should I live it? Here was Malachi's message for them. God's people must not live according to their circumstances and their assumptions, but according to the nature and the promises of God. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. We are tempted to live in the same way that they were tempted to live. We are tempted to live based on what is right in front of us. We're tempted to live based on our circumstances and to be pulled and pushed and manipulated by our circumstances and our assumptions of what is going on or what God is up to. And it is difficult for us, as it was for them, to instead live according to the nature and the promises of God. So how do I live this life based on who God is and what God has said? So let's pray that God would use Malachi, that he would use this prophet to encourage us today. Father in heaven, give us eyes and hearts to see you and know you today through the preaching of this word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to this book of Malachi? It's the very end of the Old Testament. If you're using one of those black church Bibles, you'll find it on page 753. Here are the first 12 words of the book the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We know who Malachi is. We don't know much about him, but we know who he is. He is God's messenger. But who is Israel at this point in history? That's who he is addressing. Well, the year is about 450 B.C., and these Israelites have been back home from exile for about 100 years by this time we know that they had become disillusioned they were dealing with the reality that the the bright future that Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied it had not yet materialized and so many of their hopes had evaporated Pagan influence from cultures around them was strong. They were giving into it. They were becoming a people who no longer looked much different than the world around them. And they were at this point doubting God's affection. John Blanchard described them this way. The temple... And the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, but the spiritual and social life of the nation had been reduced to rubble. And this state of Israel was the reason for Malachi's message. They must not live according to their circumstances and their assumptions, but according to the nature and the promises of God. Now, the way that Malachi gets this message out is through documenting six disputes, six disputes between God and his people. That is the outline of this book, six disputes between God and his people And we're going to have time today, God willing, to tackle only the first two. The first two disputes are in chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, and then in chapter 1 verse 6 through 2 verse 9. And each of these disputes has the exact same structure, introduction, then a question, then a response. God introduces the issue. Then the people ask a defensive question. Then God responds. So let's begin with the first dispute. It is described in chapter 1, Verses 1 through 5. And the issue is introduced by God in verse 2a. I have loved you, says the Lord. Here's the issue. The people were questioning and doubting God's love for them. They were questioning and doubting God's love for them. I'm sure at some point in your life, you could relate to that. I have found that Christians usually doubt God's love on one of two occasions, almost always. Christians seem to doubt God's love on one of two occasions. Number one, when we look inward at our sin. We look inward at our sin and we think, how could God love me? How could he love me? And the second occasion is when we look outward at our circumstances, and we think, if God loved me, this wouldn't be happening. We look outward at our circumstances, and when they are difficult, and God's providence is painful, we're tempted to think, if God loved me, this wouldn't be happening, I'm not sure which it was for these Jews. I suspect it was a bit of both. They were definitely guilty of terrible sin, but also it seems that they could not reconcile their difficult circumstances with God's love. And you can hear that in their defensive question. And that is in the second half of verse 2 but you say, how have you loved us? In other words, we're not feeling it. We're not seeing it. Our circumstances are are really hard. We used to be this great, powerful, independent nation, and now we're insignificant and under the thumb of other nations. And this is how you show us love? What have you done, God, to demonstrate your love for us? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever made the classic mistake of judging God's love based on real-time providence in your life? They did. Have you ever thought to yourself, God, if, if you would just do this, God, if you would just answer this prayer, I would know that you love me. So how will God respond now? He says two things. And as always, it's remarkable. Here's the first thing. The first thing God says in response is in verses 2 through 3. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals, Of the desert. So their defensive question God, how have you loved us? We're not feeling your love right now. God's first response is Even though Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. So, what is God saying here? Jacob and Esau, if you don't know this, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. They were grandsons of Father Abraham. They were famous ancestors of Israel. And Malachi's readers, they were descendants of Jacob, not Esau. They were descendants of Jacob. And we can read their story, the story of Jacob and Esau, just like they could have, by the way. We can read their story if we want to do in Genesis chapter 25. Esau, of those twin brothers, Esau was the firstborn, which was very significant, much more significant in that culture than it is in ours today. Esau was the firstborn, and therefore he possessed the birth. Right. By birth, he possessed the right to inherit all of God's blessings, but he didn't. It was his right to inherit these blessings, but he didn't because unexpectedly, unexpectedly, Before they were even born, so this isn't they were born and Jacob looks like this and Esau looked like this, so I choose this. The point is made really clear. Before they were even born, God chose to bless Jacob, which meant blessing or love, not only for Jacob but his descendants also who are Malachi's readers. You may remember that Paul quoted this text in Romans chapter 9 verses 10 through 13. Let me read you those verses because Paul is he's explaining, he's exegeting this text we just read in Malachi. And not only so, Paul writes, but also when Rebekah, that was Jacob and Esau's mom, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's what's happening in God's response. In response to the people Doubting God's love, God first fixes their eyes on election. He fixes their focus on election. Before Jacob was born, God elected him. Before Jacob was born, God chose to love him. Before Malachi's listeners were even born, God elected them as objects of his affection. Before they were born, meaning it had nothing to do with who they were or what they would do. It had nothing to do with that. For no known reason, not that we know, for no known reason, God chose to set his love on them. Listen, think about this. This is how God is dealing with people who doubted his love for them. It's what Paul tells us as believers in Ephesians. He says something very similar to us as believers today. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, Even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us. You see, not because, just like Jacob and Esau, not because of some good or bad in us or what we had done. No, before we were born, before the foundation of the world in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. For those of you who some. Times doubt God's love. For those of you who sometimes doubt God's love, and with that goes joy, I want you to make sure you grasp this. God does not Secure the Israelites, right? They were insecure. You felt like that in a relationship. They felt like that in their relationship with God. Is God really devoted to us? Does God really love us? And God is, He's securing them here. God doesn't secure the Israelites by reminding them of their greatness, but His. He doesn't make them secure by reminding them of how great they are, but by reminding them of how great he is. He does not describe how lovely and lovable they are. That is not his response. He fixes their eyes on his electing love. His response is not, of course I love you, you're great, you're wonderful, you're lovely, you're lovable, you're worthy of love. Why wouldn't I love you? Who wouldn't love you? It has nothing to do with them before they were even born. He decisively decided, you get my love forever. If God had chosen to love you based on your lovability or good deeds or performance or anything else in you, then that love is conditional and totally unreliable. Thank God he doesn't. I think the closest we get to this is a parent's love for their child. The closest we can experience this or see this is in a parent's love for a child. When your child asks you why you love them, I'm sure, I hope you don't rattle off a bunch of their features and qualities. That's not why you love them. I love you because, you know, you're, you're so cute. What about when they're not cute anymore? I love you because you're the least annoying to me. <laughs> That's not how you talk to your kids. If your son asks you, why do you love me? Your answer is, I love you because you're my son. If your daughter asks you, why do you love me? Your answer is, I love you because you're my daughter. And for most of us, it was almost, wasn't it, parents? It was almost... Magical how much love we had for our child before we knew anything about them, before we even knew them. So, how much more does your heavenly father love you? I am not lovable. So, it is good to know that's not why God loves me. I am not worthy. So, it is good to know that is not why God loves me. He loves me because He loves me. It shouldn't be, but it is. It is undoubtable love. And then second, in verses 4 through 5, God relieves their doubts by fixing their eyes on the defeat of their enemies. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Because of his great love for them, he has defeated their enemies, is God's message. If you love something or you love someone, you will pray for and fight for the defeat of your beloved's enemies. If you truly love something or someone, then you will pray for and you will fight for the defeat of their enemies. And God, of course, has done this for us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us how? In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And wasn't the death of Christ a defeating of our enemy? Colossians 2.15 spells it out. In the death of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities See the imagery. He took their weapons from them, left them naked on the battlefield. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So that's dispute number one. In regards to God's love... God fixes their attention on his election of them and on his defeat of their enemies. Dispute number two is regarding the people's love. And it is the longest dispute. And it is introduced in verse 6a. God introduces the issue and says in verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. God turns the tables. Do you hear that? God turns the tables. The real question here is not whether or not God loved His people, but rather did the people love God? God had not distanced Himself from His people, but had they distanced themselves from Him? That's often the case, and it was here. They were not honoring God. Where is my honor? He says. They were not fearing God. Where is the fear of me? He says. Then here is their defensive question in the second half of verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? In other words, we haven't dishonored you. We haven't despised your name. How is their defensive question? And God begins responding in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, another defensive question, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? I'm sure some of you need some explanation here. As a regular part of their worship, in 450 B.C., as a regular part of the Jews' worship, God had required His people to offer sacrifices. He had required them as part of their worship to offer sacrifices. And that is because, as the ESV study Bible puts it, sin necessitates an atoning blood sacrifice because of sin. God required as part of their approaching Him, as part of their worshiping Him, because you are sinful, you need to offer a sacrifice. Blood needs to be shed. A penalty needs to be paid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, this is a principle in God's economy. We are sinners, and you cannot be forgiven of your sin without blood being shed. And the author of Hebrews was looking back to Leviticus chapter 17 there. The principle is this. Most basically, and we understand this, breaking the law needs to be punished. We have hardwired in us this sense of justice. We know, we may disagree over what those laws are from time to time, but we all agree that breaking the law needs to be punished. We all have a sense of this need for justice. You see it when your child comes to you and tells you about something bad another kid did. When I do this, this happens. So they did that. I want to see this happen to them. That's not right. They shouldn't escape justice. You see it on a football field. I just saw it two nights ago when an official misses a violation. It's an injustice, and coaches and players will get very upset over it because something wrong has happened. A law, a rule has been broken, and there has to be a penalty. You feel it when you hear that the Navy SEAL, Rob O'Neill, had shot and killed Osama bin Laden. You felt it justice. We know that breaking the law must be punished. We know that wrong must be punished. Well, what about sin? What about sin? There is nothing worse So take the illegal block on the football field that the referee did not see. Take the wrong thing that this child did that you didn't see but your kids saw. Take whatever it is, whatever example you have, there is nothing worse than sinning against God. There is nothing worse than being created by God and for God and shaking your fist at the one who made you and saying, no, thank you. I'm going to live the way I want to live. There is nothing more offensive than this. There is nothing more wrong than sin, and it demands death. It demands a sacrifice, and the point made here, not just any old sacrifice in the Old Testament. Not just any old sacrifice. They needed to be as close to perfect as possible. That animal that would be sacrificed needed to be as close to perfect as possible. God had explained this to them in the same place we read about it in Leviticus 22. Verse 19, If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. Of the bulls or the sheep of the goats. And then in verse 21, to be accepted, it must be perfect. To be accepted by God, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Listen to the end of verse 8, present that the unblemished offering to your governor Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, you wouldn't even offer this to your governor. And you're offering it to me. Verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. If this was how they were going to worship God, God would rather they not worship Him at all. Oh, that someone would shut the doors. Skip down to verse 13. But you say... the people's love for God was actually in question. And this because they offered blemished sacrifices. Let's make sure we understand this. Not just logically, but emotionally. Not just making sense of it in our mind, but understanding this in our heart. Why was it so important that the sacrifices brought to God be unblemished? Why was this such an issue with God? Why did these sacrifices brought to him need to be perfect? Let me give you two answers. Number one, an unblemished sacrifice would demonstrate the people's devotion to God. An unblemished sacrifice would have been more valuable and more costly to offer it to God, it would cost you more. It'd be more valuable to you, and you wouldn't do that unless you valued God. It would demonstrate that devotion to him. John Benton comments, sacrifice is the giving up of something we genuinely value in order to express our devotion to God. If it is not a sacrifice, if it's not costly, if it's not valuable, if it is the runt of the litter, it does not demonstrate devotion to God. That's the first reason this was important. But second and most importantly, the requirement for an unblemished sacrifice taught the people that the sacrifice for their sins needed to be perfect. It taught the people that the ultimate sacrifice for their sins needed to be perfect. These sacrifices were pointing to one sacrifice. These over and over and over again sacrifices were pointing to one, once and for all, sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice that for them was to come, for us has come Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's why in the New Testament, when John the Baptist looked out and saw Jesus coming, he looked to his followers, and of all the things that he could call Jesus, like his name, he said, here comes, do you remember in John chapter 1, verse 29, here comes the Lamb of God. Here comes the sacrifice of God. Here comes the offering of God. So there we have these first two disputes. Four more, God willing, we'll get to in weeks to come. In regards to the doubting of God's love, God pointed his people to his election of them and his defeat of their enemies. And then in the second dispute in regards to God's Questioning of his people's love, he called them to offer unblemished sacrifices once again. And the second dispute ends with God holding the teachers accountable. It was largely their fault the people were in this mess. They had failed to teach their people. Pastors can't fail to teach their people. Parents can't fail to teach their children. Christians can't fail to teach one another. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction." In conclusion, I wonder if today or tomorrow you find yourself in one of these disputes with God, where you doubt and question God's love for you, or maybe your love for God is in question. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, there is no hope for your soul apart from Jesus Christ. There's no hope. There's no sacrifice you could bring. There's no offering that you could bring that would satisfy His justice. He has made you for himself, despite what the world tells you. He has not made you for yourself. He has not even made you first and foremost for others. He has made you chiefly for himself. He's made you that you would find inexpressible joy in loving him, and honoring him, and worshiping him glorifying Him, living for Him. And we all know, because we're the same way, that you haven't. And so you stand before God condemned. You stand before God deserving and worthy of His justice and His wrath. God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven, to be washed clean, to be reconciled to him. And it is only through Jesus Christ. He came. He lived on this earth like you live on this earth, but he lived perfectly. He did not sin, not once. And yet he died the most horrible death imaginable. And he lived that life and he died that death in the place of sinners like you. So that his life could count as your life and his death, his suffering, the wrath of God could count as your suffering, the wrath of God. And if you would hear that good news and believe it, not just say you believe it, but believe it and trust Him and entrust yourself to Him, then you would be saved. For those of you who are Christians, thankfully, we're no longer required to offer sacrifices to God. The price has been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied. We stand justified Before him. But now, as his beloved, as his redeemed, he calls us to offer our very lives to him. Romans 12 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Your life is what you give to God. Holy and acceptable to God, which is, that is, your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable And perfect. This is how God calls us, His children, to live. We do not live according to our circumstances. They are what they are, it is what it is. We do not live according to our circumstances, and we certainly don't live according to our assumptions about what our circumstances mean or could mean. No, we live based on the nature of who our loving God is, who has chosen and elected us and adopted us as His children. And we live according to the great promises that He has made to us. When we live wrongly, according to our circumstances, it leads to inevitably doubt. And fear and anxiety and worry. When we live according to who God is to us and what He has done for us, it leads to gratitude. It leads to gratitude. Our gratitude, as Christians, it is not aimless. Our gratitude has a trajectory. Our gratitude goes straight to God. And we gratefully obey. We gratefully offer our lives as living sacrifices to him. So we make a practice, or we should, of thanking and praising God. We make a practice of this. As Matthew Henry put it, In thanking God, we fasten upon his favors to us. In praising and adoring God, we fasten upon his perfections in himself. Or better, and biblically, as Psalm 103.2 points us, Christians, we instruct our own soul to forget not his benefits, that we may give him the love that he deserves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you deserve all of our love. And so you have called us to love you with our our entire heart, our mind, our soul our strength, God, please forgive us, continue to forgive us when we do not, and help us, God, transform us by the renewing of our mind, change us so that we would be more like you, we would be more holy in how we live, how we think, what we say, so that you would be glorified